Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have Patty Waters with us. I hear rumors that Patty has a story to tell, and I am excited to hear it. How are you doing today, Patty? I am doing well, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, we're excited to have you here. It sounds like you have quite the interesting story, and I'd like to hear you tell us a little bit about it. How did you get involved with the foster care system? Yeah, so I truly believe that everything happens for a reason. And um, I have a personal story with foster care as I entered the system at eight years old. Um, I was in foster care for five years with my three siblings. Um, And I always say that the system exists because of examples like my siblings and I went through. Um, We we live with our dad. Um, He was from Mexico and had a green card. Um, unfortunately, because of abuse um, and his alcohol problems, we entered the system. Um, and then we had the decision if we wanted to be adopted or not. Um, because as foster kids, we believed and hope and that one day we would be reunited as that's what CPS told us they were founded upon, that they believe in the reunification of family. Um, we always held on to that hope. Um, then he was deported back to Mexico after he took a plea deal. And um, we got a phone call and the man on the other line said that our brother did not have a choice because he was not of age yet to say yes or no to being adopted, would be getting adopted. And my three sisters, my two sisters and I um, had to decide if we would say yes or no. And us saying yes meant that we may be separated. There's four of us, we were preteens, and there's already hard to place foster kids. And we realized that we were in this category. Um, And then if we were to say no, our little brother, he was a year younger than me and the youngest, would be adopted by himself. So we took that leap of faith and we all said yes. Um, And fortunately, there was a family who wanted to adopt all four of us. There's actually three. And we were able to choose which family we wanted to get adopted by. And that family lived in Austin, Texas. Um, And at the time we were in a small West Texas town. Um, And then we were adopted and um, we were able to pursue higher education. And this is something that I think is so remarkable um, as I now have a dual master's in healthcare administration and my MBA. Um, And I don't think that would have been possible without the support and love um, from from my adoptive parents. All right. Well, totally off topic here, but you mentioned West Texas. So I have to ask because I was stationed out there at one point in time. What part of West Texas were you from? We lived in San Angelo and then we lived in early Texas near Brownwood. Oh, wow. You're one of the few people who probably know where I was stationed at then because (laughs) I was in San Angelo. Wow. I was in the army. There's a little bit of air force base out there and and I'll save all my, my opinions of West Texas, but it was awful dry <laughs> and hot for my liking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My sister attended Angela State University, and that's where she met her husband. And he played on the football team. 
through Angelo State. Oh, wow. Wow. It is a small world. It sure is. So what about your mom? Was how was she, Where was she at in the whole story? Yeah. So we were born in Florida. My parents um, divorced and my mom actually went to a Native American reservation in Montana. Um, and the last time I saw her, I was five. And when CPS contacted her, she immediately um, signed away her rights. And so we were never in much contact other than a phone call here or there, like for Christmas or birthdays. Um, but so she wasn't really in the picture. Okay. That's interesting yes. that because I've never, we've never dealt with uh, any of the Native American stuff as far as it comes to foster care, but I know that there's a lot around that. It- yes. And I'm not, I know that my mom has a little bit of Native American, but she's, she's American. She's white. She, uh, she was born in Chicago, blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, I know that she did have a significant other that I think was Crow. Um, but other than that, I don't really know her relation. I know that when we were younger, we did go to powwows and um, we spent a lot of time on the reservation with friends, like her, her friends. Um, but that's really, you know, I, I actually won the butterfly dance when I was really little. Um, but then when we moved to Texas, we were no longer in that community. Oh, wow. What, what a interesting piece of culture to have gotten to experience at such a young age though. Yes. Yes. That's really wild. So you said, you know, you, you had a lot of abuse and stuff you were dealing with as a young kid. Um, was that something that, that started as early as you can remember? Or was there a significant event that brought that on in your life? Um, I just remember it was really like discipline, but my dad was a little bit further with that, um, where, you know, I think he would just get carried away with it. But it would be, you know, it would stem from like, not doing chores or not cleaning the house. Um, so that was the abuse that, that I faced. Um, and then later it came out that there was some other type of abuse with my sisters. And then that's what ended him in court. And he took a plea deal um, and was eventually deported back to Mexico. And then in 2013 for spring break, my adoptive parents and I and my siblings with my uncle, his brother, we actually took a trip to Mexico and saw my dad again um, and my biological family in Mexico. And that was a beautiful trip just to see my adoptive parents and my biological dad, like hug and converse and just, you know, really be able to forgive and, um, have that family time. Wow. Do you have any relationship with him now? I do not. Um, we are friends on Facebook, so there's occasional messages back and forth. Um, Thankfully, my parents have a lot of forgiveness, but I'm still working on that. Well, yeah, for sure. That's that's a big issue in inside of pretty much all the adults that I know at some point or another. And, and you find out when you become a parent that you're going to be guilty of some of it somewhere along the line. But there's always things that we end up trying to, to learn to forgive our parents for. And it sounds like you guys had, had more than, than the average kid did to work through. How did you... Well... I guess, what age did you realize you needed to start working through that? And how did you start to work through it? Yes, I was probably about 19, 20, I think when I entered um, college. And it was interesting, my siblings and I, each of us went through our own stages of when you start to realize trauma surface to the top. Um, for me, it was in college and my undergrad 
um, being in my first relationship, I think relationships show you where you haven't healed or trauma that, that comes up. Um, I didn't realize I had fear of abandonment and what that looks like and what that would mean in a relationship. So because I didn't want to be, you know, abandoned in a relationship, um, control became such a thing for me. And so I realized the more controlling I was trying to be of the outcome was probably me being fearful that something good in my life was going to up and leave. And um, I started going to counseling on campus. Um, I started talking with my siblings more because we never really talked about our feelings with each other. Um, And then it was like, what is this? Because I was always very happy and, you know, I have great parents. I was adopted when I was 13. Um, So I had an amazing high school, you know, high school years. Um, But it was college when I was alone, when I was in my first relationship that I started seeing patterns that maybe stemmed from an inner child that hadn't been healed. Um, So I started working through it with a therapist, practicing mindfulness, meditation, um, and realizing that I am the way that I am for a reason. Um, And who am I right now? What can I accept of myself? And what parts of me do I want to improve? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I know a lot of guys in their fourth or fifth decade who haven't got to that point in their life yet. So I'm just going to say kudos to you and, and your family or friends or whoever it was that helped lead you down that path at such a young age, because that's not something that, that most people find at a young age, especially not even in college. Most of the college folks I know, um, yeah, it's, it's more party time. They're just doing stupid stuff like that. They're not out there working on themselves. And speaking of that, that's one of those things, one of the, the statistics about kids who run through the foster system, and I forget the exact numbers, but the number of kids who, who go through the foster system that end up with a degree is staggeringly low. Less than 3%. I actually was accepted as um, a speaker for TED, for TEDx, in regard to this topic, which is former foster youth and the path to higher education. Um, I was astonished when I heard that there's 450,000 foster kids nationwide. And when they're building a new prison, they see how many kids are in prison and how many new beds will need in a prison. And I thought, what if they could look at a university, see how many kids are in foster care and determine how many professors and subjects they should be teaching at that university? I mean, what a world of a difference that would be rather than thinking how many kids are in the foster care system and how big should this prison be? Yeah. Cause those numbers are definitely interrelated. You know, that that's, those numbers are undisputedly related. And, you know, we, we've seen that if, if you look at the, the research anywhere, the, it's the correlation is, is there for sure. And somehow or another though, you walked out with a dual masters. That's pretty incredible. Now, what, what was your, what were your masters in? Healthcare administration and business administration. Okay. Healthcare and and business administration. Wow. So what led you from where you were into that world? Well, you know, because that's, well, healthcare administration, you're, you're helping people, right? Business administration, you know, is still on the helping spectrum and just on the business side of stuff. Right. So it sounds to me like you may have some of that somewhere deep down in your soul, what is it that made you choose those for masters? 
Right. So um, I was actually on a mission trip to Guatemala at the age of 15. And I went on that mission trip believing that I would be a judge one day for adoption cases. Um, We visited the only nursing home in the city and I love elderly. Um, And when I entered that nursing home with my broken Spanish, somehow I was able to form relationships. And when I walked out, I was in tears. 15, I don't cry, I have an attitude and hormones. And, um, but I cried and I said, I know my calling in life and it's for the quality of care that elderly receive. And can I go back to the US and do something with this, with this calling I feel, this purpose? Because I had a connection to the elderly in that nursing home. One of them was put there. He used to work on cars with his family. Um, and something hit him in the eye when he was working on the car. And so he could no longer see and he couldn't make money for the family. So he became a liability and they put him in the nursing home. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. So he became a liability and they put him in the nursing home um, because they they couldn't afford to feed another mouth in the house and he wasn't going to be able to bring an income. And I thought, this reminds me of entering the shelter when I was first entering foster care. And it's kind of where they, they, you know, they put kids wildly determined what, what's the next step, you know, where's the foster home available and where can we send them? So we were in San Angelo in a shelter and we actually stayed there longer than most kids for a couple of months. And then we were taken to Odessa where we have nobody in Odessa, but that's where the nearest foster family was that was able to take four of us. Um, and so. I came back to the U.S. My sisters were already volunteering for school at a nursing home. So I joined them, um, ended up being mentored by the executive director, had my own activity called Dancing Chairs with Patty on Friday nights where the elderly and I would do exercises in the chair. And she told me about this program called Healthcare Administration and that I could be a nursing home administrator. And I decided I wanted to own a nursing home or for Alzheimer's, dementia, um, to make sure the quality of care that these elderly receive is really great. And um, I love business because I like to help people, but how can I do it strategically and operationally? And how can I make sure that it's going to be efficient and effective? Um, So I love that I found a program. In my undergrad, I did business with an emphasis in health administration. And then I went on to pursue my master's in both. Um, And I still have plans to have an Alzheimer's dementia facility one day. Um, And I still volunteer with the elderly. I became a certified ombudsman to advocate for their rights in nursing homes and to remind nursing home employees what their rights are and how they're violating the rights of these elderly um, residents. That's amazing. I can only imagine how important that is right now in the middle of all the COVID thing going on, right? My my mom is in a nursing home. She had, um, I believe it was four major strokes on one day. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really good for her health. And, um, so she's been in a nursing home for a while now and, um, you know, she, she regularly is unhappy with, with some of the care that she receives and, and some of the way that that they do things. And they're all 
kind of trapped. You know, they, they can't get out, especially right now amongst this stuff. If she wants to go out with a family member, even for a few hours one day, she has to spend 14 days in a quarantine when she comes back and they don't have any quarantine beds, so she can't leave. So it's, it's a really difficult position that a lot of people are being put in. And I mean, some of the stories you hear about nursing homes are, yes, there are great ones out there, but there's also some really, really horrible ones. You know, my brother works in the business insurance industry, and he's told me a few, a few frightening tales of a couple nursing homes that he went into. And so, yeah, it's, it's amazing that, that you're out there trying to, to help out the people who are, who are helpless and kind of mirrors the, the place that you came from where somebody helping, helping out the helpless. Yes, absolutely. And I believe that I've had so many people pour into me, encourage me, inspire me throughout my journey in life. And I love to give back. You know, I wanted to be a nursing home administrator. I graduated May, 2020. And when I looked at how COVID was affecting individuals, how fam- like friends of mine, their grandparents were in the, in the hospital because of COVID. And you have to have a 30-day notice before you're told to leave the nursing home. And some nursing homes were saying, we're not accepting this resident back, even if they've been tested negative for COVID. And that's actually illegal. Unfortunately, one of their grandparents ended up dying before she could leave the hospital. But the fact that the nursing home wasn't wanting to take that resident back um, made me feel, okay, how can I make a greater impact rather than just being a nursing administrator for one nursing home? How can I help ensure there's quality of care for many nursing homes or for many elderly? So now I've explored, do I want to go to med school and be a geriatrician? Um, In the meantime, I'm an ombudsman and, and Right now, we're not allowed in the nursing homes, but I'm looking forward to the day that we are um, to really advocate for their rights. So I know I've heard the term. I know I've heard people talking about calling them and, and using their services, but I don't think I could define it for you. And most of the listeners probably couldn't either. So what is an ombudsman? So an ombudsman is just an individual who advocates for the rights. Um, for me, I'm a long-term care ombudsman. So it's advocating for the rights of long-term care residents. Okay. Is that, is that a paid position? Is that a volunteer thing? It's a volunteer thing and you have to be certified. So you have to go through training. Okay. So, so you, you have, you have people who are trained to do that. It's not something they would just accept me and to do it just because I said, Hey, let me do this. Correct. That's probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great thing. (laughs) I don't know what yes, you mean by that. I think I'm offended. We'll talk about that later. Yes, I truly believe in being a strong advocate. It's best to be educated and informed um, because there are things you're going to learn um, that you probably would have never known. Obviously, the best way to learn is through experience, but also what has, you know, don't reinvent the wheel and don't make drastic mistakes because you were never educated on it. Um, I'm also a CASA volunteer. And I cannot imagine if I never went through training and just said, I want to help out foster kids and, you know, didn't know the ins and outs and the etiquette. And um, because you're in charge of a person's life and saying to the judge, this is what I believe is in the best case for this child. And if I didn't have um, life experience and if I didn't have that education and that certification, I don't think I would make an effective CASA volunteer. So do you have a job while you do all that volunteering? Because I don't know about you, but I, I thought I had a busy life. <laughs> I like do. I also, 
<laughs> I also serve on two boards and I do have a full-time job. I'm a recruiter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hope you don't have like a whole house full of kids like we do. Cause if that's the case, I do not. yeah, you would, you would not be sleeping. <laughs> I was going to say, I suddenly feel a little lazy. <laughs> now these, I think these are, these are the best kinds of kids. I don't have to clothe or feed them. I just have to have passion. <laughs> yes. <There's that. laughs> yes. It's kind of like our godson. You know, he's a little guy still. He's a year old. And we get to love on him and squeeze him and play with him and have a great time and send him home to mama. Yes. Yes. Best kind of kid ever. Well, I, I know you, you've worked with a lot of people at this point, you know, as a CASA worker and as a, as an ombudsman, do you have any, any particular stories that really have, have, touched you long-term or changed you in a significant way? I would just say going from volunteering, um, I also worked as a resident care assistant um, and just seeing the impact that you can have on a person's well-being. Um, You know, there was a resident that just was not doing very well. um, And I didn't realize how significant a shower is. Um, I know this, this may sound off topic or really random, but even when I have a bad day, I remember, I, I think to myself, do I need a bath today? Do I need a shower? Like, you know, what is, what is self-care look like? And as you get older, self-care is still very important. And unfortunately, some of these residents can't provide self-care to themselves. So it's amazing what, you know, spending a little extra time in the shower and just under that water and, you know, putting on lotion and just putting on a nice, fresh pair of clothes um, can do for somebody. And I think sometimes just going back to the very basics of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And um, that to me has always stuck with me, how residents, some of them would wake up, you know, I would would get to work at six o'clock and they'd be already walking down the hall and say, Patty, Patty Waters, are you going to shower me today? And that to me is always something I, I go back to. It's something small but you don't realize it's small until it becomes something big in somebody else's life. And that is what I'm reminded of is what is the simplest thing I can do that may be big for somebody else and realizing our values are so different. What someone may value may seem so small to somebody else. But if you just take time to understand that value is a spectrum and to understand other people, go back to the basics and say, what can I do right now that will make a drastic difference in their lives? that helps me feel that fuels me. You know, that reminds me of a story. My son told me once he, um, he had joined the army and he joined as a nurse. And after our oldest daughter got really sick and she spent a significant amount of time in the hospital and, and he was up there, spent a lot of time with her. And after, um, you know, it was a couple of years, I guess, after, after she had passed away and he had gotten old enough and joined mm-hmm. the army and decided to go into the nursing corps and he was talking about one of the patients he was working with. He worked on, um, oh, what was the name of the the floor? It was like a long-term care floor. It was like guys, a memory care. Well, yeah, it was it was pe- older guys who'd, who'd had some of those issues um, or people who were getting big joint replacements or paral- people with long-term paralyzation issues. And he had one guy who, um, who he noticed the guy's toenails were like ridiculous. It's like, dude, do you, you want me to cut those for you? And he's like, oh, that'd be awesome. This hasn't been done in forever. And and just that that simple act really, you know, made meant a lot to the guy. And and when um when they were given their rounds or what 
whatever they called at the end of the day where they're doing their, their switch over because he was still in training and uh, his boss was there. I think it was a major or somebody. And, and one of the other nurses asked him, why, why did you do that? You know, how did you, how did you find time? Why, why, why did you, why did you, you know, throw that in there? And, and his response actually, it, it hit me and made me realize we raised a good kid because his answer was, well, everybody deserves a little bit of dignity. Yes. And that was something that, that you know, a place where, where my own son taught me a thing or two, I think about, about how to look at the world. And it sounds like yes. you've been doing a lot of that. So I have Absolutely. to ask with everything on your plate, ever going to be a foster parent? That is a great question. <laughs> that is a great, 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 great question. I still have fears. I still have phobias. I still have a fear that, you know, am I going to be the reason someone is amazing or am I not, am I going to mess them up? You know, it's a, it's a fear of parenting, um, of like, will I be a good example? Um, yeah, I still have this fear that I'm inadequate and that I'm not, not enough. Um, so I hope that one day I can be, I would love to adopt from foster care. Um, you know, um, but that's still a fear I'm working through. Well, just so you know, when our older kids <laughs> came home, they weren't adopted. They came to our house and they did not give us any instructions. And well, I was pretty certain we messed them up. And yeah. that, <laughs> that one of those was, was that son I was telling you about who was taking care of people in the hospital. So as much as I'm sure we messed him up in certain ways, he still turned out pretty good. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about <laughs> messing them up. We're all going to make mistakes. Everybody does. Yes, that is a hundred percent true. And that that's one of those, one of those things I had to learn to get over becoming a parent because Amanda was raised in a family where because of the, the, she, she experienced a lot of traumas as a young child and she wanted to be the motherly figure as, as she got older, she wanted to be the, you know, the old lady in the shoe who had so many children, she didn't know what to do. I'm, I'm questioning that now. <laughs> now that you've been successful at it. <laughs> the, the seams of the shoes might be bursting. <laughs> but, but that's, that's who she wanted to be. I never really had a thought either way as a young man. And, and this is one of those things I think a lot of young ladies don't realize young men, we typically haven't got to that point of thinking about it yet, you know, and, um, we, uh, I was handed kids and I'm like, Oh, now what do we do? You know, I had no clue what I was doing. We were young parents. Yeah. How old were we? Well, I remember, (laughs) I remember this. I, I know that then when Amanda was, was pregnant with our second son, um, she turned 21 while she was pregnant. So Yeah. There was a risk and then CJ and then Austin was, was in the oven when she turned 21. So we were really young parents. Wow. Yeah. Yes. I'm 25 and I cannot imagine. Well, I got pregnant the first time at 17. So we've got years of experience with screwing up. And I'm not going to say how old I am now. (laughs) (laughs) That was many years ago. I'll say how old I am. I'm 43 and I have a five-year-old. Well, he's about to turn six. You're so older than me though. So that, yeah. that tells you just how many years of parenting we'll get. And even today, after more than 20 years of parenting, we'll yes. just call it that. We still make all those mistakes. That did. makes me feel good. <laughs> and down and, and the kids will hate you for every mistake that they perceive, which is way more than you'll think you made. But 
But down the road, they understand, they realize that we're humans the same way that we realize that our parents are humans. Yes. I recently had that realization with my adoptive dad, right? Just called dad. Um, you know, there's a time where he said, Patty, put me off this pedestal that you have me on. Like I I'm only human. Um, and in my mind, I was like, no, you're super dad. You're supposed to be super dad, always super dad. And, um, recently I, I realized I, I put high expectations on him and, you know, he was going to fulfill those expectations I put on him. <laughs> But now I realize we're all human and um, he's human. And I love that about him where he can be honest and and let me know when I'm pushing him a little bit too hard. And, you know, yeah. I think it was one of the places where I learned to to forgive my parents for some things that I perceived as being, you know, hurtful in my own childhood, where I finally realized that they were just, my parents were young parents doing the best that they could do with what they had. And that's kind of where we all start and somewhere along the lines, we learn to forgive the people in our past, but that's, you know, and it's more challenging when you have a traumatic past though. Yes. Yes. I don't know what, um, I don't know what your relationship with your, with your mom looks like now, if there's any at all, or if that's something that you're interested in pursuing or, you know, is that, is that a part of your life or are you just moving forward trying to, to go out and like, like fix the world? Because it sounds like you're at least doing that part. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, You can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. You know, my sisters have been so supportive and encouraging and loving towards me and encouraging me to to realize that my mom is a a human just like everybody else and that... um, as we go through life, we have our own dilemmas and traumas and problems, and we're doing the best that we can with what we've been given or what we've known. Um, and I'm working towards forgiveness. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm very harsh. And I think that's why I'm scared to be a foster parent or scared to even be a parent because kids, we are very harsh critics. Um, and that is something that I do see pursuing soon. Um, right now it's still the phone calls. Um, it's the Christmas phone calls. I'll probably talk to her on my birthday next Wednesday. Um, but yes, that's still something that, um, that I think I'll pursue in the near future, but I definitely have a mother wound. Um, it's something that I, that I pray about. I'm, I'm religious and um, I'm a Christian non-denominational. Um, and that's, you know, that's just still kind of a sore spot in my heart just because of my last memory of her um, to me was like very hard. And it isn't until years later, you put pieces together, you find out more information. And sometimes that information can be more damaging than the actual event. Oh yeah. Well, first off, happy birthday next week. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're still young enough where birthdays are good. (laughs) Birthdays count. (laughs) Yeah. We've stopped counting birthdays. It's like survival marks at this point. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it, it's interesting I, the the verbiage you used you know the the mother wound because that's that can be a really damaging one and difficult to work through um is that something that you you kind of came to on your own or is that something that you you work through in counseling with uh with somebody else to help guide you through that so i follow a lot of counselors on instagram and one of them had a um like a piece of information um, on mother wound. Cause I always hear daddy issues, things like this. And I said, no, it's not really daddy issues because I was spoiled as a little girl. Um, it wasn't until years later that I found out other information about my father. And then that's when I started realizing, oh my gosh. Um, you know, then the, then the grudges started to come up and the disbelief. So, but then when I saw these, this image and description of like mother wound I related to that so much more. And then I started doing more research on my own and I started realizing that, oh my gosh, I don't have a daddy. I mean, there's going to be daddy issues and abandonment issues, but the deep, deep thing that relates so much more to me is a mother wound. Um, and that one is like way more significant and still I think is the hardest to work through because I want to be an amazing mother. I want to be a great person but that's my biggest fear is what if I fail as a mother? Well, I'll go ahead and give you some encouragement. And that is that uh, of all the mothers I know, I, I'm I, one of the best ones I could find. I went ahead and married her. Um, and, you know, <laughs> oh, she, she came through, through an experience with, with a lot of those mother wounds as well. So I know that, that it can be overcome. And, and honestly, some of the, the women that I've met who've had some of the harder childhoods with their mother, came out to be great mothers in spite of their situation, if not because of it, because they're very aware of the importance of their role. Yes. Well, you, you can take all that hurt and turn it into something beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the, the beauty of that is that we have the ability to, to take all of our pain, all of our struggles, and we can turn it into beauty if we choose to go that route. It's really easy not to. That's an easy thing. But it sounds like you're not into doing the easy thing very often. <laughs> very true. <laughs> so where, where did that drive come from in you? Because it's it's apparent to me that you, you don't like to necessarily take the easy route, that you're you're shooting for something. You're moving towards something. You're trying to make the world a better place. You're doing the hard things. Where did that that drive to do that come from? Well, when I was a freshman in college, my adopted dad, as encouragement, I always tell him, your intentions are pure, but man, your delivery sucks. Um, he sent an article about foster care statistics and what foster kids face. And I remember calling him up immediately upset. And I was just like, am I a foster kid or am I your daughter? Um, because those are two different things. And in foster care, you don't really have parents. I mean, they even tell you, you can call me my first name. Um, and, and I thought, is this what the world sees of me when they hear that I was in foster care? Do they see that, you know, I'm 97% likely to be homeless and, and I'm likely to end up pregnant like as a teen. And, you know, I'm only 18. I still have another year. What happens if I'm pregnant at 19, you know? And it's like, that made me feel like I don't want to be a statistic. And I became addicted to being the exception to the rule. Um, and I had this innate drive 
um, that continued on, um, that has allowed me to blossom and be who I am. And like I said, I had amazing friends, amazing relationship. My first relationship, he was just so encouraging. And when I didn't believe in myself, um, he reminded me like, I am great. I'm amazing. And I am who God says I am, not what the world says, not who I say, like my inner voice says, um, or that hurt little girl. Um, and yes, that's really where the, the, I'm not going to be these statistics that this is, this is crazy. I can't believe that this is almost sick. It's almost as if to get this statistics, you have to know these individuals, you know, you have to, you have to see this in real life. And if these are the statistics, who is helping this, you know, or do they just love seeing these horrible statistics about these foster kids, but who's helping overcome these statistics? I mean, I think that there should be a drive to lower these statistics. Um, I think we almost become, we're in a world of like, we love to see these high statistics for these un, un, these awful events in people's lives. And being in foster care is a circumstance, not an identity. So I don't identify as a foster youth. I, you know, say I, I was in the foster care system because it's, it's a circumstance that happened in my life, but it's not who I am. And that to me is what drives me is how can I lower this number and can we be in a world that's obsessed with like you know only three percent of foster kids end up in homeless or something rather than 97 percent. it's like we love these grotesque numbers yeah that's i think part of social media culture it's being the person to have that that um eye grabbing thing makes people pay attention to us and we feel good because we got enough likes on a post instead of going out and doing something to fix it. It's that dopamine hit we get from, from the, the, the hearts on, on the Instagram picture or the thumbs up on your Facebook. And, and that gives us all the dopamine we need. We don't need to go out and actually do anything about it. Right. And that's the culture that we tend to live in. That's something that we've been trying to talk about on here, because I think that's our ability to really change that in the world is, is for us to go out and do something about it. And it sounds like, you're going out and killing it as well, because that's, that's an amazing drive. You, you've mentioned your, your spirituality a couple of times here. Where did that come from? Was that something that you grew up with as a little girl, or was that something that you, you found in your adoptive family or later than that? It was something that has always been a part of me since I was really little, even with my biological mom, she would take us to um, church. That's where we would be fed sometimes because we didn't, we wouldn't have food anywhere else. Um, in the beginning, religion was scary to me because I remember they would speak voices over her and she would be shaking and fall to the ground and they would put a blanket over her. And, um, and then when we lived with our father, he loved Joel Alstein and would listen to him. Um, and then we would also get books delivered to us in the mail. Um, we would have like little kid books about religion and, um, I loved reading those. So I always felt like I had a relationship with God. And then fortunately all of our foster families, they were already attending church. And so it was perfect because we enjoyed going to church. Um, and then when we were adopted, they were also churchgoers. And so religion has always been at the center of all of my relationships and connections with my, my foster parents and my biological parents. And it's something that has always um, helped me lean on somebody that was consistent in my life. For me, it was Jesus and my relationship with him. And um, that's where I lean on 
a lot of people think they want happiness in life, but I believe it's truly peace that we're after. Happiness is a feeling that comes and goes, but peace is constant and it's stable. And um, that's what I find in Jesus. Oh, I could preach for hours on that whole happiness topic. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> I, I agree with you 100%, though, that we're, we're seem to be sold to build goods through culture that we all need to be happy. You know, don't I deserve to be happy? And I don't think any of us are really looking for that happiness. We're looking for connection. We're looking for, we're looking to be content. We're looking to have some significance in this life and, and be worthwhile. And I think that is worth way more than a few moments of happiness. Yes. And when I look at what you've told me about all the things you're doing, I mean, my God, you found, you found like the significance button over there. (laughs) You just keep hitting that one. (laughs) I mean, the the number of lives you you get to change, you know, working with with the elderly, that's something that that very few people understand or are willing to do. And then working with the kids as a CASA worker, because, you know, and I'm certain you've thought of this, but the, the legacy that that will leave behind the number of kids that you have the opportunity to change the kid and their kids and the next generation, because we all know that that foster care tends to be a generational issue. Yes. And, and that's something that you can have a hand in, in helping to shift that. Yes. Right now there's 1400 foster kids in Austin and you know, CPS has a bad rap. A lot of people hear CPS or they hear about, you know, other organizations within foster care and they immediately, you know, are just turned off or disgusted or, and like I said earlier, I mentioned, I truly believe that my siblings and I, our story is exactly why the foster care system exists and lives are so fragile. Um, and, it's unfortunate that so many cases that that's not the case where CPS seems like it's damaged more than it's caused good. But I'm so happy that my siblings and I have benefited from that foster care system and from CPS. And we've had, you know, an amazing story to come out on the other side. All four of us have our um, bachelor's degree. um, And, you know, we all went through our own struggles while we were in college But the fact that we were all able to get our degree is something that's significant because you don't normally see that one in a foster care kid's life and two for the full sibling group to each go through the same system and come out and all have our, our undergrad degrees. There's, I don't know any other sibling group in foster care to this day that I've, I've never met anybody who's all, all of the siblings have graduated from college. I've met siblings who taken a few courses, but then ended up dropping out or had personal reasons and never graduated. Um, so I'm big on supporting the foster care system because it helped me in my life. And I can't imagine if we didn't have that system where I would be in this life. Yes. And keeping, keeping siblings together is always a difficult thing when there's more than just two. And the fact that you guys get to stay together is amazing. Have you guys all, do you guys still all have a decent relationship? Are you still all well-connected? Yes, we are best of friends. We love each other so much. We have a sibling group chat, we video chat very often um, using Facebook Messenger. <laughs> and um, yes, we are so close. And um, I'm so thankful that we all stay together in foster care um, and that we lean on each other for support 
our, my sister Angelica is the one who was a mother of our group and, um, bless her. She was nine years old and we all looked to her for guidance. You know, I was eight, my little brother was seven and her twin was also nine. Um, so we were very close in age and, um, very, very much like best friends. Wow. Yeah. Seven, eight and two, nine-year-old kids. Your, your adoptive parents had to have been awful brave to know that very, very soon after you guys showed up, they were going to have a lot of teenagers all at once. Did they have other biological kids already or was this their first? They had one biological daughter. She was a senior in high school and was going off to college in the fall. And actually my sisters were turning 15 and uh, my parents are white. <laughs> my uh, adopted parents are both white and we're half Mexican, half white. And my sisters were having their 15th birthday, which in Hispanic culture, they have a big quinceanera, a big party. And my adopted mom is a rock star and through a beautiful quinceanera for both of my sisters. And that's also something that we are so thankful for that she honored our culture and didn't know what that was. And in a month was able to put it all together. And um, our biological grandma was able to come to the U.S. for the first time. And she was able to attend that quinceanera before she passed a few years later. So wow. that's really neat. Yes. You know, and it, it's so important to preserve children's cultures. Yes. Especially when they feel like the world's spinning out of control and they have nothing else to hold on to. So that's really neat. Not a lot of people are very conscious of that. Yes, absolutely. Another thing, you know, we, our um, caseworker asked us, what do we want in parents? I said, you know, one that had Spanish science. Um, we very much wanted our Hispanic culture. So we said, you know, preferably we would love to have a Mexican family. Um, they were the only white family that didn't have any Hispanic at all. And we, we took a leap of faith and chose them because if that was a huge decision or is, you know, we don't want to lose that culture, that side of us. We relate to that so much. Are we were able to still see our Theo Bini, which is our dad's brother um, my, our uncle and the fact that they were able to honor that. And my mom makes amazing taco Tuesday and, you know, they are so wonderful. Um, and even when they, they went to say, we want these kids, um, the, the employee said, Oh, you may not be chosen because this, these kids only want Mexican, a Mexican family. And my dad said, these are our kids. We still want to submit and say yes to, you know, to proceed with this process. Um, and I'm so thankful that they did because they were chosen from by us and they, you know, it was a mutual decision and that's what makes it even more special. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, we don't necessarily have taco Tuesdays, but we have tacos a lot (laughs) (laughs) and we're going to have to come to your house and figure out how to do it. Right. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> as long as you're not in West Texas still, because that's one place I don't want to go back to. <laughs> one of these days you're going to have to get over that. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> it was 130 degrees for three weeks straight. I, I was miserable. <laughs> I don't know how people lived there. I was, I was amazed by the fact that there was people who lived in that town. It was, I was just miserable. But, yeah, no, the, you know, talking about the culture thing, that's one of the things that I think, I think a lot of families struggle with. Because, you know, especially you have a mixed heritage. We have kids with mixed heritage. 
And we have kids who identify more with one side of their, their biological culture than the other. And that's kind of a minefield for, you know, as, as adoptive or foster parents to walk into because really you don't know where you're going with that. That's kind of just a, a guessing game as you move forward and see where it lands. And that that's right. been a challenge for us to, to always understand exactly how that, how that works out in the real life and what a kid is really interested in, you know, doing and what it means to them. Because, you know, me personally, and I say this a lot, <clears throat> I have, um, because for those who can see the video, um, I am ambiguously Brown. <laughs> that's what I call myself. I did the 23 and me thing a while back and basically all of Europe, it just said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it just said yes. And um, so other than that, I don't have any real, real hard answers as to, you know, where my real biological heritage comes from. And so I don't really know. So for me, I don't understand the culture thing as much as someone who has a, a more, um, a more pronounced culture in their life and they know where they come from. And that was a hard place for me is, is because I really didn't even understand how to, how to approach that with kids. So it's wonderful that you found a family that was willing to step right into that. And I, are, do you speak Spanish, by the way? I do not. I understand it more. Um, I can have conversations in Spanish, um, but I'm not fluent in Spanish. I, I have a friend of mine whose his mom was half Mexican, I believe. And um, I learned enough Spanish from him that I have a very short conversation. And it's going to be a fist fight if I speak the stuff he taught me. So <laughs> I stay away from it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the 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 language barrier can be can be a challenge for a lot of people as well. And so I guess you know if you guys were were raised in the states, it, that was maybe a little bit easier place for you guys to to be able to to move into any family where it wasn't just a language barrier. Um, but, but learning that, that language and the culture and the heritage and even knowing what a, uh, Kinsieta is, and I'm, I'm certain I pronounced that wrong. I've seen enough TV to know what it is and that's about it. Right. But, but other than that, I wouldn't know how to, how to throw one of those yeah. and for your, for your mom to have figured that out and then pulled that together in a month, you said, yes, I'm amazed. Because as I understand, that's not that's not like a, a slumber party, right? That's not a quick throw together slumber party. No, no. I mean, it usually takes about six months to a year to plan in advance. And there's twins, so there's two. And so I remember being at the dress shop, and you know, my sisters picked out their dresses, and the employee said, "Okay, like when is this?" And my mom said, "Next month." And they're like, "Next month? Like you have to do this like six months in advance?" And but we got it together. <laughs> that's just amazing i'm just gonna throw her some mad props because yeah I, i'm doing good if i remember when my kids birthdays are i have one coming up soon friday see <laughs> soon it's coming up soon that's it's what on I the calendar for you <laughs> so yeah it, it sounds like you guys really landed in the place that was the right place for you and and you guys have done amazingly well there you know to to have four, had four siblings all be able to get your bachelor's degree all step out into the world, keep healthy relationships and be able to move forward. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. And it's just a testament to, to the, well, it's a testament to kids to look at and understand that just because you got stuck into the foster care system through no fault of your own, doesn't mean you can't be successful. Right. You know, you guys have are really out there just 
empowering kids to to realize that they have the they have the ability to make something amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, for me, my dad has no idea like how like you know, he was like I I'll support your, your dream, your vision for elderly and nursing homes or whatever this talk is, you know, he's like, I'm in the boat business. I don't know how to help you, but he, he taught me how to network and, you know, how to talk slower so people can understand me. And, um, and then I found the people, the mentors in my life that, you know, did it before me. And I was able to gain confidence and say, how did you get there? Um, and I would love to get there too. And, um, people who are willing to pour into others. And so that's what I thrive for. Um, and I love surrounding myself with other people who do the same thing. Like I said, so much has been given to me by others and I want to pass it on. I know you mentioned the TEDx talk. Have you done that yet? It was canceled because of COVID. Um, but I truly believe that opportunities will come and go and everything happens for a reason. Um, so yes, yeah, we've had the opportunity to interview a handful of TEDx speakers mm-hmm. and, um, actually a good friend of mine just gave one, I think it was September 11th of this past year. They were doing some, mm-hmm. I think they did a remote sort of a deal. I don't really know how they did it, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's an amazing opportunity to speak to a big audience of people about things that need to be heard. And I think that's, what's beautiful about the TEDx talks you know, the Ted talks in general is that there are, are stories that people need to hear and things that we need to know about what you can do to change the world. And so I love the fact that, that you're stepping into that place in your life. And I'm certain you're right. You'll find that next opportunity to go do that. Yes. And I totally believe in, you know, I think we hear a lot of sad stories and that's why I like to share my story because um, it's a story of happiness and and then encourage other people to want to hear other happy stories. And so how do you hear those things? You encourage and empower other people to stand up and um, instill other people to believe in themselves and to believe in their dreams and to go after it. Um, and that's and that's how we gain more happy stories and, and not sad, negative stories. Um, I hear a lot of, you know, complaints of, oh my gosh, another sad story. And it's like, well, how are you going to make, make a positive impact? How are you going to change the narrative? And let's do that. So if you were talking to, you know, another, another person about your age who had this sad story about having grown up through some sort of abuse or abandonment, who had that, that story behind them and they went through the foster care system and they're struggling with, with staying out of the homeless shelters and they're struggling with trying to figure out how to keep themselves out of prison. What advice would you give them? to make their tomorrow a better place? I would ask them when you were little, what did you think about that your life would be when you would get older and you would be an adult? At what age did you believe you could not make that happen? And who told you that you couldn't make that happen? Who led you to believe this? And then, you know, it's take it day by day because this may be inappropriate to say, but if you have one foot in yesterday and you have one foot in tomorrow, you're peeing on today. And that's what I would, I would say is what age were you 
Like how, what, what did you think you were, your life was going to be like? What did you want it to look like? And what age did you start to believe that that couldn't be possible? And who made you believe that? Did someone tell you, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. You're always going to be this way. And what do they mean by that? You're always going to be this way or you're never going to amount to anything. What were you going to amount to before they even said that to you? And then live it day by day. I think that's great advice because I think even without the trauma in your history somewhere, we've all had somebody who, who stepped on a dream and we forget that when we were seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, that we probably let somebody step on our dreams and we didn't have the, the wherewithal at that age to, to say, no, forget you. I'm going to go do amazing things in my life. And, and we gave up on a lot of that stuff. So yeah, yeah. That, that's great advice. I love that. Yeah. And if you have a speaker to me, podcast, um, to me looking at, you know, Jay Shetty is someone I love watching his videos. Um, I have a dear friend of mine who, when he was really little, he was hit by his mom and right at the second before he was going to like wail because you know he was young, he like was taking that deep breath before letting out a big cry. But right before he could get to the cry, his mom grabbed him and in Spanish told him, don't you dare cry. Men don't cry. And in that moment, he, he, all the tears and everything went back inside and he couldn't cry. He went to a conference many years later uh, for self-improvement. And in that moment, he was just in tears and he felt like he was a new person in a new body and he actually skipped to the bathroom. Um, and so that's what I think about is when you were really young, who grabbed you and told you, don't you cry or don't you dream or don't you, whatever it is, you know, because you were going to do it, but who, who, who stopped you? Is it, and sometimes it's ourselves because we know how to be, we know how to keep ourselves safe in chaos, but we don't know how to keep ourselves safe when the environment is safe. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't argue with a word of that. It's, it's, you know, we have that whole part of the brain that, that amygdala that keeps us, keeps us fighting for life when, when we're, when we think we're going to die, but in those moments where you're supposed to be safe, you know, who is, who is nurturing us along the way? I think yes. that goes back to that whole story about learning to be a good mom and, and understanding that's probably, that's probably about 90% of it. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for, for telling your story on here today. You've, you've got an amazing story of coming out of something that's really difficult, really hard, a place where most people would say you have every reason to have problems, to be, you know, struggle with addiction, with struggle with, with relationships, struggle with a career. You've got every excuse for that. As it turns out, you just decided not to, not to stand on those excuses and to go change the world. And you're only, was it 25? Correct. You got a long ways to go yet. You've got a long ways to go. And, and that shift in your, in your, in your life starting so young, I can only imagine about, you know, what that's going to look like 20 years from now, 40 years from now, that's going to make a difference in this world. Thank you. So, yeah, I, I'm, I can, 
say no, no, no more good about it than I can come up with off the top of my head here. To, to, I'm just blown away by how young you are and, and the way that you have chosen to reframe this. It sounds like some really good people have helped mold your, your perspective into a really healthy place so that you can go out and change the world for a lifetime. And that's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the near future we'll hear Patty Waters' name somewhere again. Yeah, I do have a little bit of an addiction to to listen to TED Talks, so I'll be listening. <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Jason and Amanda. And thank you, Amanda. I always say everything happens for a reason. I know this this podcast is for foster care and in my story, but honestly, I'm holding back tears. I and I'm great at that. But hearing your hearing a little bit about you and your motherhood and your own mother wounds. Um, gives me hope. And to hear from one person to another, it's, you know, one woman to another. Um, You've done more for me today than I've been able to do for myself the past 25 years, you know? Thank you. That really means a lot. That means a lot to me too. And I'm always open for a good chat. Um, I have lots of mother wounds and I have lots of stories. I have lots of wisdom sometimes, and I have a lot of tears sometimes, but more than happy to chat at any point. Thank you so much. I'll take you up on that. Awesome. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Patty's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercare at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.